there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Due to the graphic nature of this case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, assault, drug abuse, and sexual content that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Hello? Hello. Could you please connect me with Silvano Muto, the director of Atulita? Yeah, this is Silvano. What's this about? The article you wrote on that Montessi girl. The one who they found on the beach. I think I know... Well, I was wondering if you had any more information. Anything that you didn't publish? Sorry, lady. I'm done with that story. What do you mean? Didn't you hear? I signed a statement saying I made the whole thing up. And you know what? They're still probably going to throw me in jail for writing it. Well, did you make it up? Doesn't matter if I can't prove it. Now... If you'll excuse me. Wait! What if I could help you prove it? I'm listening. Not over the phone. It's not safe. Do you know the Mile Luci on Via Nazionale? Yeah, it's a bar. Meet me there in one hour. Mile Luci... Wait, I didn't get your... name. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. Last week, we covered the initial investigation into the death of Wilma Montesi, an Italian woman whose lifeless body was discovered on a private beach outside of Rome in 1953. This week... We'll cover the dramatic events that led to the reopening of her case and the political firestorm that followed. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of Parcast's other shows on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. It was October of 1953, and Silvano Muto felt like the king of the world. Almost overnight, the 24-year-old journalist and magazine editor had become a household name. His tiny, low-budget weekly, Atuelita, was outperforming competitors and selling out in magazine kiosks all over Rome. It was all thanks to Wilma Montesi, the 21-year-old daughter of a solidly middle-class Roman family. She was seen leaving her family's apartment around 5.15 on April 9th, while her mother and sister were out at a movie. Two days later, her body was found on a private beach near Torvionica, a fishing village about 20 kilometers south of Ostia. 
Her shoes, skirt, stockings, and garter belt were missing. The police determined that Wilma Montesi's death was not the result of suicide or foul play, but a tragic accident. The girl had gone alone to the shore, hoping that the ocean water would soothe her eczema. On the beach, she had removed her outer garments and swam out into the water, where she suddenly became ill, fainted, and drowned. The family was satisfied, but virtually no one else believed the story. While the autopsy had determined that Wilma was a virgin, many in the press pointed to the missing skirt and garter belt as evidence that a man had been involved. In the summer of 1953, a drought of new information caused the story to recede from the headlines. And it might have stayed that way had Atuelita reporter Silvana Muto not met Adriana Bisacha, a young would-be actress who claimed to have been with Wilma Montesi on the last night of her life. On October 6, 1953, Silvano Muto published Bizacha's account under the headline, The Truth Behind the Death of Wilma Montesi. In the article, Muto alleged that Wilma had lost consciousness after overdosing on drugs at an orgy attended by many of Rome's elites. Believing that she was dead and desperate to avoid an embarrassing scandal, the partygoers abandoned her on the beach where she drowned once the tide came in. The incredible story flew in the face of everything the Montessis had told the police about their daughter. According to Wilma's family, she was a timid, shy girl, devoutly religious, chaste, and honorable. She had few friends outside of the family and rarely left home alone. Was it possible that there was a side to Wilma that the Montessis did not know? Had she been living a double life? Or had she recently gotten involved with a dangerous crowd? Silvano Muto's incendiary article had not merely questioned the honor of a middle-class Roman girl. It had painted a picture of Italian society in which wealthy, powerful men conducted hedonistic orgies and operated from the shadows with impunity. The authorities responded immediately. On October 24th, Silvano Muto was summoned to the Viminale Palace to meet with Procurator General Angelo Sigurani. The procurator made it abundantly clear that if Silvano could not convince him that his article was based in truth, he would have to withdraw it or face charges for spreading incendiary lies. In retrospect, Muto might have recognized that he had been naive not to expect such a move. The Italian government had a reputation for strong-arming the press and frequently used threats of prosecution and offers of amnesty to shut up embarrassing stories. Muto knew it was unlikely that the procurator would consider Adriana Bazaccia, a bohemian woman whose main source of income was posing nude for poor artists, a trustworthy source. He had no other sources and was in no position to argue. He begrudgingly signed a statement that his article had been nothing but lies and speculation designed to draw attention to his fledgling magazine. No doubt Muto expected that in signing the document, he had thrown away his career to save his freedom. He had washed his hands of the Montesi case, or so he thought. Whether due to a clerical error or malicious intent by the procurator's office, the agreement he signed protected him against prosecution for past articles, but not the crucial one published on October 6th. He would have to stand trial and publicly denounce the story he had written. Even if he fell on his knees and begged the judges for leniency, he faced the risk of a heavy fine and jail time. But luck, it turned out, was on his side. Two days later, Silvano Muto received a mysterious phone call. A young woman had read his story and wanted to meet him. She had information to share. On October 26th, Silvano Muto met the woman at a bar in downtown Rome. Introducing herself as Anna Maria Caio, she was smartly dressed, had dark brown hair, and possessed an air of aloof sophistication and confidence that seemed unusual for a woman of only 22 years. Despite this, Silvano Muto noticed that she frequently glanced over her shoulder and carefully scrutinized the faces of the bar's other patrons. Looking for someone? Making sure we weren't followed. Your article upset some powerful people, Mr. Muto. I would very much prefer they did not see us together. Which powerful people? 
I didn't name any names. No, you referred to them only as the mysterious Mr. X and Mr. Y. I wondered if that was a matter of discretion, or if you truly didn't know. Well, if rumors are to be believed, Mr. Y is already known. Piero Piccioni, the foreign minister's son. You're confirming it was him? I'm really more interested in Mr. X, the man behind the alleged narcotics ring. And you know who this man is? Perhaps. Are you going to tell me, or are you just wasting my time? What did you say about him? Mr. X knows many things, and holds completely in his hands those who might talk. You suggested he possessed the power to make the police close an investigation. Would you betray such a man, lightly? Betray? So Mr. X is a friend of yours? Friend is not the word I would use. Mr. Muto, have you ever heard of the Marchese of San Bartolomeo? I don't think so. Then I think we will have to start at the beginning. Silvano Muto could not have known this at the time, but the story he was about to hear would forever change his life. Coming up, we'll dive into the seedy underworld of 1950s Rome and meet a fascinating new villain, the dastardly Marchese of San Bartolomeo. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Now, back to the story. Atuelita director Silvano Muto was desperate for a lifeline when he met with a young would-be actress named Anna Maria Cayo on October 26, 1953. He hoped that the information she'd promised would reinforce his article tying Wilma Montesi's death to drugs and orgies attended by the Roman elite. He could not have been prepared for the story he was about to hear. It began over a year earlier, in the summer of 1952, when Anna Maria Cayo had first arrived in Rome. Like so many other young women, she had come to the city in the hopes of launching a career as an actress. Unlike Bizaccia, Muto's first source, Anna Maria was in the position to do something about it. Anna Maria Cayo hailed from a wealthy and socially prominent family in Milan. Her father, a successful lawyer, had friends amongst the highest echelons of the government and the Vatican. Despite her family's social standing, her early life was tumultuous and marked by drama. Her parents divorced when she was young, and her father secured custody of the children by kidnapping them from her mother. When she was 16, her father married a 25-year-old widow. Anna Maria hated her young stepmother and quickly sought avenues to lash out. She frequently ran away from home and submitted photos of herself to magazine beauty contests. While this successfully infuriated her father, it also inspired the young Anna Maria to envision a new future for herself. She began to dream of a life as a model and movie star. Anna Maria was aware that what she lacked in acting experience, she more than made up for in family connections. She had no scruples about exercising them. She convinced her exasperated father to write a handful of introductory letters to his highest-placed friends. And in the summer of 1952, Anna Maria departed for Rome. Even with the letters in hand, breaking into the film industry proved more challenging than Anna Maria Cayo had anticipated. But she possessed a tenacity and determination uncommon for women her age, and through persistence, forced many of her father's connections to meet with her. It was through these connections that she eventually met Ugo Montagna, 
or as he introduced himself, the Marchese of San Bartolomeo. Hugo Montagna was in his mid-forties, nearly twice as old as Anna Maria Cayo. Tall, slender, and athletic, he had silver-gray hair, a dark tan, and wore expensive, fitted suits. As Anna Maria was told, he was a man who had many friends and the ability to open doors that others could not. The Marchese was amused by the young actress's spirit and immediately began to pursue her romantically. He showered Anna Maria with flowers and expensive gifts, including a new Fiat 1400. She was flattered by his attention and excited by the potential he represented for her future. Not long after meeting, Anna Maria moved into one of his many homes in downtown Rome. It didn't take long for her to realize that the Marchese was not entirely the man he said he was. First of all, his title was pure fantasy. He hailed from an impoverished Sicilian family and had built himself up from essentially nothing. At the time, it was illegal to impersonate royalty, and yet this was far from the most illicit of Montagna's activities. Montagna had an unusual skill for improving his position no matter which way Italy's political winds were blowing. He had risen to prominence under Mussolini's rule, despite the fact that he upset the dictator by taking his sons to a high-end brothel. He had done well under Nazi occupation and continued to thrive under the Christian Democrats. There were indications that his illicit activities might extend beyond his connections in the government. He had friends amongst the Coast Guard and at major ports and managed a large hunting estate at Capacoda, the same area where Silvana Muto would later investigate reports of narcotics trafficking. None of these illicit activities bothered Anna Maria Cayo so much as Montagna's failure to follow through on his promises that he would help her launch her career. In fact, the longer their affair lasted, the more determined he seemed that she not work at all. His possessiveness frustrated Anna Maria. Montagna was married, though he had promised that he was awaiting an annulment from the church. At first, she assumed that was the only roadblock to their wedding, but as time went on, she began to suspect that he was having another affair. On January 7, 1953, Anna Maria learned that Montagna was at his house in Rome, despite having been told by one of his servants that he was out. She raced over in the fiat he had given her and saw him getting into his own car with a slender brunette woman. The proof of her lover's betrayal lit a fire in the young actress. As Montagna and the woman pulled away from the house, Anna Maria slammed on the gas. Montagna spotted the fiat in his rearview mirror and accelerated, initiating what would develop into a high-speed chase across the busy streets of Rome. Hey, watch where you're going, lunatic! Anna Maria clipped a pedestrian near Porta Maggiore. She stopped just long enough to give the injured man her information before speeding off again. When she caught up with Montagna, his female companion was no longer in the car. He came to a screeching halt in front of the steps of the Piazza di Spagna, and Anna Maria pulled up right behind him. What is wrong with you? Were you trying to run me off the road? Who is she? And the dent in your Fiat? What did you hit? Who is she? The woman you were driving. I saw her with you. I don't know what you're talking about. You're lying. You're always lying. Have you ever been faithful to me? Anna Maria, you're causing a scene. I can't believe I ever believed you were going to leave your wife. That's enough. If this is how you're going to behave, I want no more to do with you. What? I can't have you embarrassing me and jeopardizing my business. Go home, Anna Maria. Rome is no place for foolish little girls. For a brief moment, the fight seemed to have put an end to their relationship. Anna Maria Cayo returned to her parents' home in Milan. But the separation didn't last long. A few months later, Montagna reached out begging her to return, and on April 14th, she boarded the train for Rome. On the train ride, she read the newspaper article about the body of a young woman who had washed up on the shores of Torvianica, not far from the Marchese's hunting estate at Capacoda. When she arrived at his apartment, she found Montagna talking on the phone. Don't worry, my friend. This is all being handled. 
Ugo, I'm here. I'm sorry, I'll have to call you back. Don't worry, this is all going to be sorted. Ciao, Piero. Darlene, how good to see you! I thought you were going to pick me up at the station. Urgent business came up. How was your trip? I read about the girl they found at Torvionica. That's right next to Capacota, isn't it? I suppose it's nearby. But why worry your head about such morbid matters? I was just wondering if the guards might have seen something that night. I assure you, that woman has nothing to do with us. Now, I'll hear no more of this. Over the next few weeks, Anna Maria overheard more strange phone calls. At one point, she heard the Marchese state that his friend, Piero Piccioni, was in serious trouble. Well, meanwhile, the city's newspapers and magazines were obsessing over every new detail in the Wilma Montessi case. It did not take long for her to surmise that this was the topic of their discussions. Her suspicions only deepened when, after an outing, the Marchese stopped at a luxury apartment complex in central Rome. He asked Anna Maria to wait in the car and then headed inside. It was then that Anna Maria spotted an Alfa Romeo 1900 parked outside the apartment. It was the same make of luxury car in which Wilma Montessi and a mysterious man had reportedly been seen in the days before her drowning. They returned to the apartments several more times, but Anna Maria was never invited inside. On yet another outing, they visited the Viminali Palace, which housed the Prime Minister's office and the Ministry of the Interior. After an hour of waiting, she saw the Marchese exit the building with Piero Piccioni and Tommaso Pavone, the chief of police. The three men shook hands warmly before going their separate ways. To Anna Maria, they seemed relieved and pleased, as if some important problem had finally been solved. As the Montessi story gradually disappeared from the press, Anna Maria Cayo found herself thinking of it less and less. Until October 6th, when she stopped at a small street corner magazine stand, she spotted the issue of Atualita and felt compelled to buy it. As she read the story, she felt a number of old suspicions and fears click into place. She pored over the descriptions of the drug-fueled orgy Wilma Montessi had allegedly attended on her last night. She imagined how the girl had been convinced to take drugs, how she had lost consciousness. The men at the orgy had panicked. One of them, the mysterious Mr. Y, was the son of an influential politician and could not afford the scandal. But he was not the one with the most to lose. That would be Mr. X, the organizer of the event. If the article was to be believed, he was involved in significant drug trafficking operations. There was no telling how far such a man would go to avoid exposure. Anna Maria Cayo relayed all of this to Silvano Muto at the Mille Luce Bar on October 26th. As she explained, she had drawn three conclusions. First, that the Marchese Ugo Montagna and Piero Piccioni were in some way involved with the death of Wilma Montesi. Second, the Marchese was using his considerable influence with the chief of police to force a cover-up. And third, she now believed that the woman she had seen in the Marchese's car on January 7th during the high-speed chase across Rome had been none other than Wilma Montesi. To Silvano Muto, Anna Maria Cayo's testimony must have seemed heaven-sent. Where before he had believed himself doomed to months behind bars, he now had powerful testimony with which to defend himself. Anna Maria Cayo's family connections and social status made her a far more reputable witness than Adriana Bisaccia had been. And crucially, significant portions of her story, such as her relationship with the Marchese Ugo Montagna, could be verified. On January 28, 1954, Silvano Muto stood before three black-and-gold robed judges at the Palace of Justice. The court expected the proceedings to end with a quick guilty plea, in accordance with Muto's signed statement. 
But something far more exciting was in store. Let's get this over with. Silvana Muto, you stand charged of spreading false and tendentious news and disturbing public order. How do you plea? Not guilty, Your Honor. Mr. Muto, on October 24th, did you or did you not sign this document stating that you invented everything in your article in order to boost sales? That statement was a lie. I was pressured to write it by Procurator Sigurani. But my article is entirely factual. I have two witnesses who can confirm it. The first was my original source for the article, Miss Adriana Bizaccia. The second, Miss Anna Maria Cayo. Silvano Muto's announcement that he would fight the charges against him shocked the court. The young magazine director was confident that the testimony of the two women would be enough to prove that he had not invented the content of the article. There was only one problem. Adriana Bisaccia was missing. Coming up, the explosive trial of Silvano Muto brings a host of new revelations and sparks a final investigation into the death of Wilma Montesi. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by Too Faced Cosmetics and Better Than Sex Mascara. The name literally says it all. This mascara is that good. There is a formula for anyone and everyone available in original, waterproof, and chocolate that thickens, lengthens, and curls to give you all the drama and volume. Or try the new Naturally Better Than Sex. It has a 98% naturally derived formula. Shop Too Faced Better Than Sex Mascara at Sephora today. Now, back to the story. On January 28, 1954, Atuelita director Silvano Muto shocked the court at the Palace of Justice by announcing that he would fight the charges against him. To do so, he would rely on the testimony of Adriana Bisaccia and Anna Maria Cayo. But Adriana Bisaccia was nowhere to be found. Mere moments after it had begun, the trial had to be suspended so that Muto could track down his star witness. Locating Adriana Bisaccia would not be easy. On January 10th, she had been admitted to a hospital for a suicide attempt in which she had swallowed 50 pills of quinine. After she was discharged from the hospital, she visited the Atualita office and received some money from Silvano Muto's secretary, intended to tide her over until the trial. She temporarily moved into the apartment of an artist friend, and the two started up a romantic relationship. Unfortunately, she soon discovered that her lover was addicted to morphine. She had convinced him to check himself into a hospital, which meant that she was now homeless. When Silvano Muto finally found her, she seemed like a different person from the woman who he had met several months earlier. She was on edge, fragile, and easily frightened. When she took the stand, she no longer spoke with confidence about the orgies and drug parties she claimed to have attended. Her memories on the events were hazy, and she claimed amnesia. At one point, she hysterically denied ever having met Wilma Montessi. Many in the press wondered if she had been paid off or threatened into silence. But while Adriana Bisaccia's testimony was a disappointment to Silvano Muto, his second star witness was everything he could have dreamed. Anna Maria Cayo commanded the court's attention from the moment she took the stand. She was calm, confident, and deliberate in her testimony, providing an endless string of dates and facts to bolster her memories. She launched into an exhaustive account of her time with the Marchese, describing the secretive phone calls and the meeting with Piccioni and Chief of Police Tommaso Pavone. She did not hold back information about her own personal life either, and willingly divulged the intimate details of her relationship with Ugo Montagna, as well as past lovers. 
For Italians in the 1950s, her scandalous confessions were mesmerizing. She seemed like a femme fatale that had stepped out of a movie screen into the real world. The press would lovingly dub her the Black Swan. But as fascinated as the public was by her story, the true shock came when she informed the court that the Marchese's activities were already the subject of a private investigation by the highest echelons of the Italian government. Miss Cayo, forgive me, but if what you say is true, why wait until now to expose Montagna? Why didn't you go to the authorities sooner? I did. On February 6th, I met with Procurator Sigurani and told him everything about the cocaine smuggling and Ugo's relationships with the portmasters. Sigurani just told me to stay out of it. Do you realize what you are saying? I'm only telling the truth. And before that, I went to Mayor Lapira, who told me I should speak to Prime Minister de Gasperi. I wrote two letters, one to the Vatican and one to the government. I was contacted by Mr. Fanfani. Who, did you say? Amin Ture Fanfani, the Minister of the Interior. I went to meet with him and Carabinieri Officer Colonel Pompey and told them everything. I understand that Colonel Pompey has since been conducting his own investigation into Ugo Montagna. The revelation that the Ministry of the Interior had circumvented the police to launch a private investigation gave the trial a new significance. The public demanded that Colonel Pompey's report be released, but the government resisted. In the end, they didn't have much of a say in the matter. The report was leaked. On the evening of March 8th, pages of it were posted all around the city. The Pompey Report, as it was called, painted a picture of Ugo Montagna's activities that surpassed even Anna Maria Cayo's accusations. It confirmed that he had risen to power through bribery and blackmail. He was accused of corruption, tax evasion, war profiteering, and running an unlicensed brothel. It was discovered that he had previously been arrested for embezzling public funds and for falsely using an aristocratic title. Worst of all was his war record. It became clear that Montagna had switched sides frequently during World War II and at one point had delivered his Jewish business partners to the Nazis. He had later used his influence with the Nazis to secure Tommaso Pavone's release from jail, explaining how Pavone had found himself in the Marchese's debt. The revelations were hugely problematic for the Marchese, whose entire mode of doing business had depended on his perceived legitimacy and his ability to operate in the shadows. But it also spelled trouble for the chief of police, Tommaso Pavone, to whom his activities had been connected. Pavone's position became untenable when a photograph picturing him with Ugo Montagna circulated and he was forced to resign. Silvano Muto's trial, initially expected to be a non-event, had turned into a political firestorm. The Roman public eagerly awaited the testimony of Ugo Montagna and Piero Piccioni. Both men were scheduled to appear in court on March 20th. While they did arrive in court, they did not get the chance to speak. In wrapping up her testimony, Anna Maria Cayo revealed that she had gone to stay with the Marchese at Capacota on October 30th, four days after she had told her story to Silvano Muto. Fearing that Montagna had found out and intended to kill her, she wrote a note and gave it to her landlady, with the instructions to give it to the police if anything happened to her. Miss Kyle, is this the letter you wrote on the 30th of October, 1953? It is. Please read it aloud for the court. I have too many Christian principles to commit suicide, but knowing both Montagna and Piero Piccioni, I do not want to disappear without leaving any trace. Ugo Montagna is the head of a dope ring responsible for the disappearance of many women. He is the brains of the ring, while Piero Piccioni is the assassin. Recognizing that his case against Silvano Muto was virtually unwinnable at this point, the prosecutor requested that the trial be suspended indefinitely. The judge agreed, and the proceedings abruptly ended. While the Silvano Muto trial was over, 
it had guaranteed that the Montesi case was not. The authorities recognized that the people's already shaky faith in the government was on the line. On March 26th, four days after the Muto trial had ended, officials announced a new investigation into the death of Wilma Montesi. It would be led by Dr. Raffaele Sepe, a trusted and experienced magistrate. This time, they promised no corruption or outside intervention would stand in the way of truth. In the months after Silvano Muto's trial, Piero Piccioni and Ugo Montagna found themselves the subject of constant attention from the media. Both men denied knowing Wilma Montesi, and while they admitted that they were acquaintances, they insisted that they did not know one another well. While Piero Piccioni did his best to avoid the cameras and reporters, Ugo Montagna was eager to speak. He bullishly rejected Anna Maria Cayo's accusations and painted her as a churlish, scorned lover seeking revenge after being rejected. Meanwhile, another member of the press believed that he had stumbled upon the truth behind Wilma's death. He suggested that the culprit had been known from the beginning of the case, but had been heretofore overlooked. Fabrizio Menghini, the chief crime reporter for Il Messaggero, pointed at Giuseppe Montesi, the 28-year-old younger brother of Rodolfo and uncle of Wilma Montesi. In the days after Wilma Montesi's death, he had assisted the family by driving the Montesi men back and forth between the various police stations. And when she was found, up and down the coast to question residents and beachgoers. According to some, he had shown a little too much interest in the case. He had constantly pressed the police on whether they had any new information or leads. Shortly after the funeral, Deputy Procurator Leonardo Morante caught Giuseppe eavesdropping on an interview he was conducting. He ordered Giuseppe's apartment to be searched. In Giuseppe's room, The police found several items of lingerie, pornographic magazines, and a picture of Wilma. His co-workers claimed that he had left work early on the afternoon of April 9th, the same afternoon Wilma Montesi had disappeared, after he had received a call from a woman. Giuseppe denied that such a call had happened, and he had an alibi. His fiancée, Mariella Spisu, claimed that he had spent the evening of April 9th with her. While many remained suspicious of the uncle, the present case against him was weak. There was little to do but wait for the official inquiry to come to an end. In November of 1954, Rafaela Sepe announced the conclusion to his investigation, which had run for 16 months. He produced a 300-page report detailing his methods and findings. The report dismissed the idea that Wilma had drowned at Ostia as a fantasy. The body had been exhumed and a fresh autopsy had been performed. The sand in her lungs matched that of Torvionica, where she was found, not Ostia. It also showed that she had not been in the water for more than a few hours and thus could not have been swept all the way from the northern beach. And, as Sepe pointed out, the fact that Wilma's feet had been bothering her had not even been mentioned until the family was visited by Rosa Passarelli, the Defense Department clerk who claimed to have seen her on the train to Ostia. Yet Passarelli's memory of the woman she had seen on the train was hazy, and Sepe found that she had poor eyesight. There was also the possibility that she had made the story up completely. It was odd that she had gone to the family before the police, and she worked for the government. If there was a cover-up afoot, wasn't it possible that she was somehow involved? This was the theory proposed by several members of the press. The idea likely would have been dismissed had it not been discovered that Passarelli had bought an apartment in cash shortly after meeting with the Montessis. Whether or not the Ostia theory had arisen from the family or from the authorities, Sepe was now convinced that the girl had drowned at Torvionica. But how had she reached the remote beach, and why? The new autopsy offered some clues. It placed the likely time of death as the evening of April 10th, rather than April 9th. 
This meant that Wilma had spent the last night of her life away from home. The length of time since death made it impossible to confirm whether she had taken any drugs. They did take a closer look at the bruises on her body and limbs and determined that they were caused shortly before death. The report theorized that they were the result of Wilma being transported while she was unconscious. The Montesi family had finally admitted that Wilma's attitudes and behavior had changed slightly in the weeks before her death. She had gone out more frequently, but there was no evidence that she was living a double life, as had been suggested by the press. There was also no indication that she had ever considered taking her own life. Well, taking all this into account, Sepe arrived at his final conclusion. On the afternoon of April 9th, Wilma had gone to meet a man with whom she was romantically involved. She left behind the photo of her fiancé, Giuliani, as she did not wish to divulge that she was engaged. The man had taken her to Torvionica. One way or another, she lost consciousness. She was abandoned, and when the tide came in, she drowned. But who was this mystery man? As far as Raffaella Sepe was concerned, it was Piero Piccione. The jazz musician's alibi had always seemed questionable, even more so when it was discovered that the date on one of the prescriptions he'd used to prove his illness had been altered. As for Anna Maria Cayo, Sepe was convinced that she was telling the truth. He determined that the Marchese Ugo Montagna had gotten involved to help Piero out of trouble. Montagna had leaned on his relationship with the chief of police Tommaso Pavone and police commissioner Severio Polito to try to force a cover-up. Piero Piccione, Ugo Montagna, and Severio Polito were all arrested. Piccione was charged with manslaughter, aggravated because of the use of drugs. Montagna was charged as an accessory in her death, and both he and the police commissioner were charged with perverting justice in their attempts to cover up the crime. The trial began in January of 1957, four years after Wilma Montesi's death. The authorities determined that emotions surrounding the case were too high to hold the trial in Rome, and so it was moved to Venice. Piccione continued to claim that he had never met Wilma Montesi. The weight of the trial hinged on the strength of his alibi. The doctors and housekeepers who had appeared at the Muto trial took the stand once again. They reaffirmed the claim that he had been bedridden for several days from April 9th to the 12th and explained that the altered prescription was merely an error. The prosecution was quick to point out that all of these witnesses were either friends of the Piccionis or employed by them. They also argued that the fact that Piero had been ill did not mean that he couldn't have gone out without any of the doctors or servants knowing. No witness was more highly anticipated than Anna Maria Cayo. The press was hopeful for a repeat performance of the display she had put on in the Muto trial, which for a brief moment made her the most famous woman in Rome. Anna Maria repeated everything she had told the Roman court, but had little to add. The defense attacked her every contradiction and exaggeration and painted her as a woman desperate for attention and fame. Where before her performance had seemed natural and authentic, here it seemed transparently self-aggrandizing. By the time she was done, her credibility as a witness had been badly damaged. The defense was also keen to offer an alternative perpetrator and spent several days building a case against Wilma's uncle Giuseppe. They painted him as a scoundrel and wannabe Don Juan who regularly courted other women despite the fact that he was engaged. The Montesi family maintained that Giuseppe would never have endangered his niece, but when pressed on the subject, Maria Montesi broke down and admitted that Giuseppe had frequently taken Wilma for rides alone. Then one of Giuseppe's co-workers testified that he frequently called girls while at work and that he had called one of these girls Wilma. Some of the Montesi's neighbors even went so far as to state that they believed Giuseppe was obsessed with his niece. As with Piccioni, the main issue was the uncle's alibi. Giuseppe had initially claimed that he had spent the evening of April 9th with his fiancée, Mariella Spisu, but his co-workers claimed that he had left early 
and they believed he was going to meet another woman. Quickly, it became clear that unless Giuseppe named this woman, everyone would be forced to believe that it had been Wilma that he was seeing. Finally, he confessed. He had spent the evening with Rosanna Spisu, the sister of his fiancée. Rosanna confirmed this, as well as the fact that they had been secretly seeing each other for some time, and that she was now pregnant with Giuseppe's child. The dramatic turn of events had proved more than capable of capturing the court's attention, and it was with some disappointment that the focus returned to Piero Piccioni. The prosecution had still not offered any evidence to suggest that he had known Wilma or that he had been near Torbionica on April 9th or 10th. His alibi, though shaky, was supported by several respected professionals. On May 28th, the three judges delivered their verdict. Piero Piccioni was acquitted. As it was determined that there was no crime to cover up, Ugo Montagna and Saverio Polito were both found innocent as well. As the judges would explain in their written statement, they had found Anna Maria Cayo's testimony to be questionable. While they were sure some of her accusations against Ugo Montagna were true, they believed that she was driven by a desire for attention and fame and thus could not be trusted. In the aftermath of the trial, Ugo Montagna charged Anna Maria Cayo and Silvano Muto for defamation. They were found guilty but would not serve any jail time. Adriana Bisaccia was found guilty of lying under oath and sentenced to 10 months in prison. The newspaper Il Messaggero lamented the anticlimactic ending. Quote, of all the terrible suspicions which tormented public opinion, nothing is left. No orgies, no white slavery, no boatloads of prostitutes, nothing. Over 60 years after Wilma Montesi was found on the beach at Torvianica, the circumstances surrounding her death remain a mystery. We'll quickly run through the most prevalent theories. First, did Wilma commit suicide? Well, her family jumped to this conclusion as soon as she didn't show up for dinner. But unless they knew something they didn't share with the police, there's no evidence to suggest that Wilma was considering suicide. And if that was her intent, why take the long trip to Torvionica when the Tiber River was much closer? Then there's the possibility that Wilma went to the beach alone and drowned due to an accident. This was the theory presented by the police when they first closed the case. The press dismissed the idea, arguing that Wilma would not have needed to remove her garter belt if she had just gone to dip her feet into the water. Well, the biggest problem with the footbath theory is the sand discovered in Wilma's lungs and stomach. It matched the beaches near Torvionica, where she was found, and not the ones near Ostia. This is significant because Wilma could have hypothetically reached Ostia alone by taking the train. But to get to Torvionica, Wilma would have needed a car, which she didn't have. Meaning that she didn't go to the beach alone. Someone was with her. Or someone brought her to the beach, already unconscious, and left her there. In Adriana's version of the story, reported by Silvano Muto, Wilma overdosed on drugs at an orgy, and then was taken to the beach and abandoned. And while the story seems incredible, the fact that Piero Piccioni and Ugo Montagna were arrested and charged for the crime lends credence to this version. Ultimately, however, neither men were found guilty. So what do we think happened? <sighs> Personally, I'm still suspicious of Wilma's uncle, Giuseppe Montesi. He seemed far too interested in the police investigation, lied about how well he knew his nieces, and turned out to be a pretty unsavory character. Well, he did have an alibi, though. He did, but it was provided by the mother of his future child. I'm not sure that testimony alone is enough to count him out. But what do you think happened? I've tried to piece together the simplest explanation possible, working purely off evidence from the autopsies. We know that Wilma Montesi drowned at Torvionica. Judging by the fact that she couldn't have gotten there alone, and by the state of undress in which she was found, 
it seems likely that she went there with a man. Remember, the Torvionica Beach had a reputation as a secluded spot where Roman couples would go to have sex. But the autopsy stated that Wilma was a virgin. Yeah, it did. So whatever her intent was in going to the beach with this man, something went wrong. Wilma's small heart could have made her prone to fainting in either extremely stressful or exciting situations. But she was with someone on the beach. Wouldn't they have been able to get help? You would think so. But for some reason, they didn't. Maybe they thought she was dead and feared being accused of murder. In any case, Wilma was abandoned on the beach and left to drown when the tide came in. We may never know what really happened, but we can see the impact her death left. Despite the Montessi family's wish to protect the chaste, respectable image of their daughter, Wilma's reputation was dragged through the mud. She became a symbol for wayward Roman girls who fell prey to vice and corruption. In the eyes of her countrymen, dreams killed Wilma Montessi. Dreams of fame and excitement and a glamorous life as a movie star. For many years, Roman mothers would remind their daughters that such dreams were dangerous. They would lead to the same end that befell Wilma Montessi. A lonely death on a cold, windy beach. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Unsolved Murders as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us if you enjoy the show. The best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time if we live till next time. Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Andrew Kelleher and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Susanna Corrington, Harris Markson, Brett Schneider, and Dan Velasquez.